I am absolutely pro-vaccine, but to me it's unconscionable that a society uses its children as shield for adults. So we're going to inject our children with an experimental drug that they don't have a significant benefit from to shield ourselves. Today I sit down with public health policy expert Dr. Scott Atlas to discuss the ethics of vaccinating children, the recent COVID surge in Florida, and the reality of natural immunity and how vaccine mandates seem to ignore it. When your antibodies decline after four months, eight months, whatever it is, that does not mean necessarily that your protection is gone. Scott Atlas is the author of the upcoming book, A Plague Upon Our House, My Fight at the Trump White House to Stop COVID from Destroying America. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelly. Dr. Scott Atlas, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Happy to be here. It's been many months since we spoke last. Um, it was in April of this year of 21 that we were speaking and we were talking about some of the terrible consequences of lockdown policies. Um, and we were talking a bit about Florida where you had done advisory for Governor DeSantis. And uh, uh, I wanna kind of dig into that a little bit. Like how has Florida done? There's been a big surge. There's been a lot of criticism of uh, Governor DeSantis's policies since then. And he's deployed monoclonal antibody clinics uh, around as well to try to cope with some of this surge. Give us a picture of what you're seeing. Sure. Well, I first, I think we have to realize we're seeing something similar to what we saw last summer, 2020, where there was a, the virus spreads in sort of a geographical way. It comes and goes in waves. And we, we didn't, uh, ever seem to have learned from that. So when we look at the maps of the cases, we see just like last summer, we had a surge in this time in the South, in Florida, Texas, and some of the Southern states. And that surge came. It did not mean that somehow there's a unique uh, case spread in the South because of some other reason, because now those cases came down and we see cases coming up in the upper Midwest and the sort of Great Lakes region and to the east of the Great Lakes, just like we did last fall. So this is a, a cycle. We, we, we somehow don't seem to learn much from what we've seen over and over and over again, but that's what's happened. So in Florida, as a specific question, uh, some of the things that have been said are completely untrue. For instance, there's a claim that, oh, the cases are spreading because not many people have been vaccinated. Okay, this is just simply false. Uh, we, I look at the CDC data every single day, and what we see is that Florida has vaccinated at a higher rate than the country in every single age category. And those three categories that are tabulated are people 65 and over, all adults ages 18 and over, and total population. And in every single one of those three categories, Florida exceeds the vaccination rate of the United States as a whole. Florida has vaccinated over 95% of people 65 and older. And when I say vaccinated, I mean they've at least received their first dose because we know that almost everybody essentially gets the second dose who gets the first dose. So for purposes of discussion, 
we'll say one dose or, or more, 95% of Floridians over 65 have been vaccinated. Three-fourths of Floridians have been vaccinated who are all adults. And over 60% of all Floridians have been vaccinated. And so that is better than most than, than uh, the average of the United States. So it's simply untrue to make that claim. What is the right claim is that there is a geographic wave that comes into these states. Now, Florida's performance uh, has also been distorted, and I, I believe it's, it's, it's for you know political reasons, but I, I don't know. Hard to say why. The answer to the question why is always difficult. We look at Florida's performance, and we see that over the first year, the, the two characteristics that we should be looking at are excess mortality, which means all the deaths over the baseline that would have occurred without the pandemic. And uh, Florida outperformed most states, two-thirds of states in the United States, in excess mortality increase during the year, the, the first year, March to March, roughly. Uh, they were outperforming uh, the average in the nation in age-adjusted mortality, in age-adjusted mortality over 65. And you have to remember, Florida is one of the oldest states in terms of age demographic in the country. They're the, they have the second highest population of people over 65, and that matters because that's who's at risk in this virus. It's not equally risky for people at all ages. Uh, and then we look at Florida comparing it to a similar state. And for a similar state, we like to look at California because these are both large states, ethnically diverse, diversity in terms of the urban to rural uh, living situation, uh, and sort of similar climate, although I have to admit I prefer California's climate much, much to Florida's. I don't personally like humidity. And so we look at the data and we see Florida is the fifth oldest state. California is the seventh youngest, by the way. So right away, California has an edge in terms of what should happen. California did very strict lockdowns and prolonged school closures and everything. And so that's another good comparison here because Florida did the opposite. Governor DeSantis said no, he's not going to lock down completely. And in fact, he opened up widely at the end of August 2020 and opened all schools 100% in person if parents wanted. And so he did not suffer the damages of those prolonged lockdowns, which are enormous. But looking simply at the data from COVID, Florida did better than California in age-adjusted mortality from COVID. Florida did better than California in excess mortality Florida was the number one ranking state of the 10 large states in the country in age-adjusted mortality from COVID. You have to realize the burden to outperform is not on the states that did not do the lockdown. The burden is not on Florida to say it did better. The burden is on the other states that did the draconian measures that destroyed people, that killed people with the lockdowns, that sacrificed our children with the school closures. The burden is on them to outperform Florida. So a place like Florida, they just have to do reasonably close to these other states. But in fact, they did far better. And it's just that at the moment, they're experiencing a surge that California hasn't experienced yet. Well, so Florida had their surge. Their surge for this surge peaked around August 15th. The cases started coming down at the second half of August. Now we're in, say, uh, mid-September at this point, and we see that the cases 
not only have come down in Florida and the South, but the spread, the rate of spread, uh, the so-called R, R value that people talk about, is very low now in the South, and it's higher and, and above one, which means it's spreading rapidly in the Great Lakes regions and the upper mountain Midwest areas. And so they're getting more cases. Florida's and the South are past their cases. Now, the, the impact though, again, you can't be focused on cases. This is another sort of repeated mistake by people analyzing the pandemic. The question is, who's dying? Who's getting the severe illnesses? Getting a positive PCR test is not being sick. They're very different things. Yet, we've seen this time and time again, that there's this uh, very bizarre focus on stopping all cases of COVID when the real focus should be stopping the, de the serious damage from COVID, stopping the serious critical illnesses from COVID, the deaths from COVID. And so that's the whole point of making sure that the high risk people, the elderly people are getting the vaccine. That's called targeted protection. They need it first. It's not true that the virus is high risk for most people. In fact, it's the opposite. It's not high risk for most people, uh, and particularly not for children, for instance. So uh, we look at uh, how, how things have gone, have gone in this last surge, and yes, we got a lot of cases, and yes, we got some deaths, but the two things to stress is that with this Delta variant, which is the overwhelming number of cases uh, in this recent surge, it's less lethal than the original surges. And what we mean by that, why do I say that? Because less people are dying divided by the number of cases. Now, why are less people dying? Number one is that as we expect, anyone who knows anything about medical science, you know, first year, second year medical student, as a virus evolves, it typically becomes less lethal, not more lethal, it survives uh, by uh, having mutations and evading the, the uh, limits of the protection in the population. But with that, it usually gets less lethal. And so we're seeing less lethal data, uh, you know, less number of fatalities per cases. And it's also partly, of course, because we are vaccinating a lot of the high-risk people. That's the goal of the vaccine. The goal of the vaccine, a vaccine does not necessarily stop the infection per se. That isn't the main purpose. The main purpose is to make sure people stop dying. And we are seeing far fewer people dying considering the number of cases. And that's true all over the world. When you look at the data in the UK, when you look at the data everywhere in in japan in iceland you know in in uh, almost everywhere that, that i've looked uh, that's what we see it seems that we had a headline recently about how uh, governor DeSantis had reported that about half of the hospitalizations due to the virus were actually people who were vaccinated and so there, there's these questions right now about the efficacy of the vaccine. There was a political article saying that the data that isn't published yet from Israel is suggesting that the efficacy of the vaccines is, be, is, is becoming less to some extent. Um, how, what, what are folks to make of this? Sure. So the vaccine story is somewhat complicated, but basically the vaccines have shown the following. Long term, 
they have been so far. I mean, we're only, say, eight, eight months into the vaccine era. Uh, long term, the vaccines have been highly protective against death over 90%. And I'm looking at the data from Israel. I'm looking at the data from the UK. Frankly, uh, I, I've become to, I'm, I'm to the point where I'm skeptical about the data coming out of the CDC, frankly. I hate to say something like that, but I, uh, I look all over at the data now. I don't just blindly accept CDC data. Uh, they've been erratic in what they've said. And I think we have to, you know, uh, we, we, we trust who we trust for a reason. So I look at the Israel data and the UK data, and we see very good protection of the vaccines against death even now. There is no real evidence of serious waning of protection against death from vaccines. That's point number one. Point number two is there is evidence that people still, uh, that, that the protective effect against symptomatic illness decreases over time. Uh, with the vaccines. And that is true when looking at the data from all over the world. And so, yes, you can get infected, even if you're vaccinated. Yes, you, a certain percentage of people do get uh, serious illness, uh, but there, it's still highly protective against death. So that means, uh, what, what do we do about the uh, durability of the immunity with vaccinated people? Because we're interested in protection and we're interested in durable or, or long-term protection. And we know the following. Number one, protection against the illness is more robust and more durable, longer lasting from a natural recovery after the infection than it is from a vaccine in an uninfected individual. That is factually true and inarguable, although people try to distort that. And that, why do I say that? Because of the data. The data is, and the data is very good from Israel, that shows that uh, there is a 13-fold, 26-fold, meaning times, more symptomatic cases in people who have been vaccinated but never infected when they get eventually infected versus people who have had an infection in the past, never been vaccinated, they are more protected. And we never hear about this from the people who are mandating vaccines and everybody blindly saying that everyone must get a vaccine uh, without regard for the natural immunity. And this is a, a huge public health uh, not just error, it's a disgrace, uh, really, that our CDC and our uh, White House uh, leaders of task forces are not talking about basic immunology. Uh, we know this is true for other viruses. We know it's true for SARS-1, 17 years after people who have had SARS-1, we look at their blood samples and it has still robust immune response to SARS-2. That illustrates a cross-protection sort of mechanism, but the point is 17 years later. We know from Spanish flu, 90 years afterwards, we see people have protection against that virus and immune response. This is not new ground. This is not something that's shocking. It would be shocking to think that people who have recovered from the viral illness do not have long-term protection. That would be the shock. Uh, and everybody who's a credible scientist knows that, but somehow we have disregarded uh, you know, all the information that, that we used to know. So, it's a, so we, we see there's, there's, there's another point to that I would like to make about the, the measure of the protection. Antibodies decline after an infection 
over months, typically. That's common. That's not a cause for alarm. We don't give a booster shot or a vaccine just to up the, we don't do that on the basis of antibodies. We do it on the basis of protecting somebody from a serious illness. We're not sitting there proudly displaying our antibody levels. We want to make sure people don't get sick. And when we look at that, uh, that concept, we, we always seem to forget, or we don't forget, I don't forget, but the, the press and some of the most visible faces of public health on TV never educate the public about something very important, which is that when your antibodies decline after four months, eight months, whatever it is, that does not mean necessarily that your protection is gone. So because you have a long-term immune system in your body. This is not new, this is medical student, first year, college really, level science, is that you have stored in your both T cells that people have talked about, as well as uh, memory B cells that are in your bone marrow that provide protection for years. And there is evidence that this virus has shown that. This is not, it would be a shock if it didn't. So. You know, there's just a lot of misinformation again, and a lot of incomplete information, a lot of hysteria being unfortunately promulgated by people who should know better. If you don't know this stuff, you shouldn't be in the CDC. If you don't know this stuff, you should not be advising the President of the United States. And if you don't know this stuff, you certainly should not be on TV talking to the American public. At least among the people I'm speaking with, there's an understanding, and you've already talked about this to some extent, that the vaccines, you cannot count on the vaccines to prevent infection. You cannot count on the vaccines to prevent transmission of the virus. But how does that work exactly? Because there's initially, once you get the vaccine, there is some protection from infection, but it seems to wane pretty quickly. I just, I'm wondering if you could kind of unpackage this whole picture for us. First, we want to make sure people understand the vaccines do protect com uh, against infection compared to people who did not get a vaccine. They do. And I, I want to make sure people understand what has happened here, in my opinion, uh, in the discussion about the vaccines, is that there's been so much pressure and so many erroneous statements made trying to force people to get vaccinated that there's a too strong backlash against the vaccine. The vaccines are good. The vaccines are protective compared to people who didn't get the vaccine uh, in terms of getting reinfected or getting an infection. And But yes, it's true. It, it's not perfect. It's not 100%. It's, it's in fact, in the Israel data, only 40% protective at some point in, uh, you know, months and months later against all infection. So, uh, but that does not, that's not to say that the vaccines are not good. They are very good. They are protective. And most importantly, like I said, they're protective against uh, hospitalizations and deaths. The vaccine uh, protection wanes over time. We've seen this in the studies in, uh, in Israel. We've seen it in the studies in the UK. We've, I saw some data yesterday in the Netherlands that showed similar sort of waning. Um, and okay, so we, we don't have experience. I think we should, we should start by saying this. This is the first mRNA vaccine that's been used, to my knowledge. This is a new, new type of technology here. And so we don't know the long-term uh, efficacy 
of these vaccines, and by the way, we don't know the long-term side effects of these vaccines because they've not been used long-term. Um, so, but we, we see that uh, the protection against all infection and against other things like the load of virus in your throat uh, is, is imperfect and it wanes over time. But again, we keep forgetting the bottom line. The bottom line is we are concerned with the serious illness. We don't walk around checking people's throats for what, your, what bugs are in your throat. And I'll tell you why. Because you're walking around with the, the bacteria in your throat that causes meningitis. Okay, Neisseria meningitides. You're walking around with certain forms of strep, streptococcus in your throat that in certain settings causes disease. We're not there to sterilize people's nasopharynx. That's not the goal here. And anyone who thinks that needs to see a psychiatrist, frankly, and they shouldn't be advising people on this vaccine. What we are in favor of, or what we are, our goal is, is to, again, to stop the serious damage, to stop the death. So the, the endpoints here have to be understood. Today I see some, uh, some noise about uh, Pfizer saying that the, the vaccines are safe and effective in children. And when you look at that, uh, this is an example I'm sort of taking off from what your question is, if you'll excuse me, but when you're looking at, they say they're efficacious, well they didn't even examine anybody who didn't get the vaccine, so they cannot calculate efficacy at all. That's just simply not possible. They measured efficacy, it seems, although I didn't see the data, but from the article, uh, it seems they're talking about they measured antibodies. Okay, they got a vaccine, they got a drug, they injected it into kids and the kids mounted an antibody response. We're not, again, that's not the right endpoint. The endpoint is protection from serious illness or death. That's the endpoint. So A, they didn't measure that, and B, these kids, unless you're severely immunocompromised or have a disease like leukemia, a child does not have significant risk from this virus. So you have to wonder, how can you measure efficacy for a vaccine against a disease that has no significant risk in these subjects, in these patients? Uh, you know, I just think we're, miser we're mismeasuring the endpoint here is the long-winded answer to your question. The waning protection cannot be based on a test for antibodies. The waning protection must be, are you protected against the serious consequence of the illness? Mm. Fascinating. So I think a lot of people, when they would hear you say that there's no risk for children. I, I didn't say no risk. Okay. I said there's, no, there, there's a very, very low risk, no significant risk. That, that's a... That's a term that's very different from saying no risk. Okay. There are children who die. There are children who get seriously ill, but they're extreme. The risk is extremely small. The words minuscule come to mind. And there's also some evidence of side effects in children, um, the heart inflammation from the vaccine from the vaccines yes and so there's been a few studies that have been done or at least one that um, try to kind of juxtapose the risk right are you familiar with these yes so uh what we see uh from my reading of the of the numbers although it's difficult to assess is because many of the 
the reports are self-reported uh, side effects. But what, what it looks like from the calculation is that there is a very concerning risk of heart inflammation, particularly in young, young males. So adult, teenager, teenage boys, and uh, sort of adolescent boys, particularly. And that is, uh, you know, multiple fold greater than their risk of heart inflammation without the vaccine. That's what I've read. Now, is that something to be worried about? Yes, absolutely. Particularly since the risk of the disease itself in those same people is extremely low. So uh, it is not something that only I am concerned with. We look at the FDA advisory panel that just recommended whether or not people should get boosters. Mm -hmm. And they voted for a recommendation of boosters in people over 65 and high-risk people. But they recommended against, 18 to 0 they voted, in fact, against a broad recommendation of boosters in, in uh, younger people, meaning 18 to 65. But more than that, they called out specifically the risk, the concerning risk of myocarditis, heart inflammation, from the vaccine in, in, young, uh, in young people, in, in teenagers. And so uh, this is concerning to everyone, including people advising the FDA. It should be concerning to everyone. And every parent should be thinking as a critical thinker, what's the risk of the illness we're trying to protect their child from versus what's the risk of the vaccine and the risk of the illness is extraordinarily small. So any increased risk, any increased risk from the drug that you're injecting, it's a tough case to make. And it's an individual decision to inject an experimental vaccine into a child who has extremely low risk for the disease itself. Now, the, the other point about it, giving vaccines to children, if I may, is that I said, this is an experimental technology. We do not have long-term tallies of side effects on this vaccine. It seems to be there's a lot of deaths from the vaccine that are reported. I'm not sure about the percent, uh, but it's concerning as well, obviously. But we're talking about injecting children, okay? If you're 70 years old and you're taking a vaccine, your life expectancy is about 15 years. If you're a child who's 10 taking an experimental vaccine, with or without boosters, you're going to be living with that vaccine for decades. We don't know the long-term impact of these vaccines. I think it's something to at least think about. It's very important to think critically here. We're in an era where the trust in experts has been damaged. And that's a self-inflicted wound by the experts, by the politicization of science, by the censorship and these political diatribes written in scientific journals, uh, by the uh, censorship on YouTube and Twitter and Facebook about anything that questions the prevailing narrative. And what that means is that individuals are really now responsible for making their own critical assessments. There's been damage in the academic side. The university professors have been unhinged in their uh, criticisms of people 
that have questioned and even put forward alternatives like targeted protection instead of broad lockdowns. And you know, part of that reaction by the university professors um, has destroyed the trust in people with, with credentials. And so we know credentials are not the magic end game here. It's being a critical thinker and the responsibility is more and more on the individual. I want to talk about this more, um, but before we go there, I'm just remembering when we spoke last, and this was something you had some um, pointed thoughts about, um, we, the data was showing that children actually don't spread the disease. For, and the, the mechanism of that was... Or, they or, don't or frequently spread, spread, spread the it, disease. Spread it a lot less than adults, let's say. If the, thank you for correcting me here. The question is, um, I think one of the reasons that people are pushing to vaccinate children, some people are, is because they imagine that it will help protect society more broadly, i.e., you, you know, we don't want to kill grandma, so to speak, okay? But we also had this information back then that the children don't seem to spread the virus very much relative to adults. Um, has this changed? What is that reality? And I, I remember we were also talking about the ethical considerations of this sort of setup. Well, you know, the data has been in now for a year and a half. The children do not significantly spread the disease. And we know this from data all over the world. We know it from, you know, Austria, Sweden, Germany, France, Italy, Spain, the UK, on and on and on, including places like Sweden, who uh, kept their schools open, 1.8 million children, no masks, no social distancing, and no secondary impact from that. We know the teachers do not have a higher incidence in those settings of the infection compared to other careers. And we know that when cases occur in schools, they almost always seem to come in from the adults carrying them into the school, not from the children. And you know that, that argument is over as far as I'm concerned, because no matter how often people insist the earth is flat, it's round and the earth does not change its shape because more people keep insisting the earth is flat. So I'm not going to waste a lot of people's time explaining that. If these people are refractory to fact, then they're, they're just, they're hopeless. So uh, the, the disease is not significantly spread by children. Uh, the um, risk to teachers is not high. It's low. It's a low risk environment. There is zero excuse for teachers to not teach in person. And there's a bigger issue, though, that you bring up that I think is worth saying. And that is that, to me, it's unconscionable that a society uses its children as shield for adults. The children do not have significant risk from this illness. Are, you, are we a society, a civilization, where we are using our children, even if they did spread it, as shields. We're going to inject our children with an experimental drug that they don't have a significant benefit from to shield ourselves. My role as a parent is to protect my children. My role is not, and I will never use my children as shields to somehow protect me. And that's that's really just a heinous violation of all moral principles, in my view. Um, in terms of ethical considerations, I'd have to wonder about the ethics of a human subjects committee in, a, in an institutional review board, which has to approve all pr protocols. Uh, 
I'd have to worry about the ethical input into those people. To design a clinical trial for vaccines on young children under five who have extremely low risk from this disease, injecting these children with drugs. I, I, I think our society has fallen remarkably low, frighteningly low, if that is the level of, uh, that, that we have sort of sunk to. You mentioned earlier the, the two uh, FDA officials that basically quit around this, the whole issue of boosters and then wrote in, about their decision-making, I suppose, in, in Lancet. What is the significance of this in your mind? Oh, I think it's, it's, uh, it's remarkable. Uh, it's a sliver of hope to me uh, that actually someone had the guts to say no and to actually look at the data, who is in a position of FDA advisory uh, committees. These two people uh, quit, and it's obvious they quit because the FDA was going to come out with some sort of a booster recommendation for everyone because they immediately wrote a piece in The Lancet, they co-authored a piece in The Lancet with some others that said that there is no uh, compelling case to use boosters uh, universally in people. And uh, then within days, the advisory committee itself uh, recommended to the FDA the, the uh, similar recommendation, except they recommended boosters for people who are high risk and elderly. And so I think this shows actually uh, it's very good news that people are thinking critically uh, without, and, and this is what's needed. We need people to step forward uh, and think critically and make rational, uh, safe uh, advisements to people in this country. Because as I say, the trust has been damaged. And uh, when we see, when we are, the other part of that is that I was shocked really that The Lancet published it. Because we've seen the real decline of journals, including The Lancet specifically, as you remember in February 2020, they published a letter from a group of virologists claiming it was factually known that the virus originated uh, naturally and anyone who said it was out of a lab leak was a quote conspiracy theorist. Uh, that was a lie. Their, their article was a lie because it was not known at the time and it still isn't known. And in fact, it's common sense and much of the evidence suggested it was from a lab leak. I don't think it's known yet. And that's not the point. The point is that they tried to intimidate others by declaring some sort of false consensus and demonizing anybody who would speak against it. And of course, it's very effective, that kind of censorship, because people are afraid. Their whole careers are tied to those people. Those are senior people who wrote that. They're tied to the funding stream that allows people to advance in their academic careers. And it takes a lot of guts to step up and say, no, that's not true. Uh, and so that was, uh, you know, that was in line uh, with what Dr. Fauci was saying, and um, you know, at the time. And so I think we, we need to really be able to express the information because the solution to the trust is really the freedom to be able to say the information and put it forward to the American people and let the scientific process, which is by definition debate, unfold so we arrive at the truths that we need. 
You know, there is, a, I believe, a, an article in Lancet that is kind of finally talking about this um, other side of, uh, I mean, I, I don't even know how to say it. I mean, I don't think there's any way they could completely say it is impossible that a lab was involved, you know, based on the data that was available at the time that you mentioned. So there is, Lancet seems to be somehow coming around with, with papers of opposing views. It, that, mm -hmm. I, I found that to be quite promising. Well, I mean, I think that, of course, uh, as an optimist, you would say the truth will prevail. And I like to believe in that. Uh, on the other side, we are still seeing the university crowd, including Stanford University, circulating internal memos, uh, trying to uh, censure people like Dr. Jay Bhattacharya most recently. Uh, they did this, of course, to me in, uh, back uh, in September. And, you know, this kind of uh, academic uh, politicization or ad hominem attack, personal attack, instead of talking about the data, is really abhorrent to what the, the main role of a university is. The sacred role of a university is to allow the free exchange of ideas. That's why people are going to university. That's the only role of a university, frankly. Uh, and to teach people how to critically think, you need to have them show be shown the ideas. We reached out to Stanford University and we have not yet heard back. Uh, so, uh, and this is continuing. I mean, the British Medical Journal just wrote a, an opinion piece. I don't know why it was published. I'm shocked that it was published, uh, criticizing doctors Bhattacharya, Koldorf, Gupta, and me, not on the science, not on the uh, anti-lockdown pro-protected, uh, targeted protection stance that we have put forth, partly because those people that wrote it are proven wrong at this point, and, uh, but they're lashing out at somehow the source of funding of the four of us. And of course, the article is filled with, with untruths, lies, falsehoods, fantasy. And uh, you have to wonder, so, so I don't agree that the journals are now you know, all coming around. I think the scientific journals are a disgrace, many of them, and they keep sullying their reputation. And again, this further buries the trust in experts and expertise and in science in general uh, to the public. And so, again, the more we speak about this, the more the public understands at least what's going on and uh, hopefully before the next crisis comes, some of these issues will have been uh, at least aired out in public and we will not see this again. I'm skeptical though. I think these people are, you know, are uh, this people, meaning the journals and the scientists whose careers are wedded to their, their own groupthink, uh, they're, they're gonna have trouble uh, ever admitting that they were wrong. And they were. We reached out to BMJ and the British Medical Association to see what they have to say, and we have not yet heard back. I've also been thinking about the fact that, you know, when you have this sort of um, epistemic crisis, so to speak, right? Um, this is the this is kind of a rife area for conspiracy theory generation, and you know, and then some of this stuff gets weaponized and used and people just don't know what's right, what's wrong, who do I trust. Um, 
you know, that's one of the reasons I think this show has been successful is because we try to give people fair play, right? That have important things to say and have, you know, can back it up. It's a disturbing time to live. Yeah, I think that there's a very difficult question for, for what I'll call regular people. Uh, but we all have the, the dilemma, who to trust? Who do we trust now? Because a lot of the institutions, a lot of the uh, experts, they failed. They revealed their political leanings instead of relying on data. They're not objective. They came out and wrote uh, really uh, opinionated pieces instead of talking about the actual science, etc. And the government leaders have also been extremely erratic and claiming the science is being followed when they don't know the science or they're denying the science uh, for their own reasons, potentially out of fear. So the question, who do you trust, is very difficult. And I, and I, I can answer it uh, this way, is that I think you should look at people who are consistent, uh, not erratic, not saying you don't need masks, you need goggles, you need two masks, you need uh, no mass if you're vaccinated. You need mass if you're vaccinated. These kinds of people are not to be trusted. You, you can't, that's just common sense to me. Uh, you cannot trust people of a conflict of interest. You can't trust people to pontificate about the need for vaccines when they're on the board of the vaccine company. I mean, you have to, you have to be a thinking person now. So there's a bigger burden on individuals, like I said. And I think you have to look and take an effort, make an effort, to learn. Now, not everybody has the time to do this. I understand that. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think uh, most people spend some time on a computer and uh, it, it, it's very difficult. So the solution is not just on the individual. The solution is we must demand a lack of, of censorship. We must demand as a people access to the information. We cannot allow the censorship, the uh, attacks uh, to happen on university campuses, in scientific journals, by people in government positions. We really uh, cannot tolerate that because, uh, you know, that, that free flow of information is critical for us, regular people, to be able to make a conscious decision about how we are going to behave and what's best for our families. Well, and I think, and I'm not even sure if you mentioned this, but the dissenting voices are critical to the science, right? I mean, in fact, it's what science is all about, I think, right? That's exactly right, is that the scientific process is all about the debate. If you don't allow the debate, there is no such thing as science. So one of the things that I found quite concerning, you know, in, in addition to everything we've just been discussing, is there seems to be this kind of conflation between vaccination or getting vaccinated uh, and vaccine mandates or the demand that people mm -hmm. be vaccinated in all of its myriad of forms that it's appearing now. Um, it's almost like for some people, these two concepts are interchangeable. Well, I, I think this is a very important point for people to understand is that uh, people, uh, for example, I am absolutely pro-vaccine I would think that everybody who's high risk and, and over a certain age, whether that's 50 or 60, should, should get the vaccine. Uh, that's very different from forcing them to get the vaccine. 
That's very different from mandating with uh, penalties or restrictions of freedoms unless they get the vaccine. Uh, that, that I am not for, and there's reasons for that. Number one, um, people that are, let, let alone, by the way, forcing everybody to get vaccines uh, with, or not having freedom of employment or freedom of movement. Uh, you know, the, the vaccine, the disease, again, is only high risk for some people, not for everybody. When you're vaccinated, you personally are protected from the deleterious, you know, death and serious harms of the disease, no matter whether other people are vaccinated or not. And perhaps most importantly, you know, we either live in a free society or we don't. Uh, it is true that certain vaccines are mandated for children. Those vaccines that are mandated for children, even if you believe they should be mandated, are for diseases that are highly dangerous to children and highly communicable to other children who therefore have high danger from that virus. That's not the case with this disease. Children do not have a high risk from this disease. Children do not uh, necessarily benefit themselves from the vaccination of this. So that, that's a different type of thing. But in any event, the, the idea of, vax, of, of forcing people to get vaccinated uh, is, is particularly troubling because A, we live in a free society, I think, uh, B, uh, we don't, this is a new vaccine. And what I mean by that is, again, it's a new technology. We don't have long-term safety data. C, we never did a large clinical trial on these vaccines because after the initial emergency use authorization, the control group, the placebo group, was injected with the real vaccine. So we got rid of the placebo group. And a fourth, we see complications arising from the vaccines. It's not clear uh, how many, but they're concerning. And so we don't just rush ahead and force people to take a drug that is not completely understood, that we have no long-term history with, and that doesn't even necessarily benefit a large segment of the population because they are not at risk, at high risk, from this illness. Uh, people, uh, I would think, in a free society have the right to decide if they're going to inject a drug into themselves. In fact, the force vaccines, particularly for children, violate several of the codes outlined in the Declaration of Helsinki from 1964 that is sort of a standard for medical uh, ethics and, and morality. And I think, you know, when you start having a society that violates some of the most basic codes of ethics, uh, I, I think we're in trouble. And so we need to have the debate. There are some ethicists coming forward. They should have been there in there from the beginning in the discussion about what was going on with the lockdowns. Uh, but we, we, we as a society have inflicted a tremendous amount of damage already, particularly on low income and poor people from the lockdowns. And that story, uh, will not completely unfold for many, many years. The massive harms, the mismedical care, the new child abuse, the tremendous psychological damage on teenagers, suicidal thoughts in one out of four in the United States, in college age kids, uh, you know, a tripling of self-harm visits, 
by teenagers to medical doctors. Uh, you know, massive weight gain, averaging 28 pounds in more than half of adults of people 18 to 22 in the United States. We have created a massive healthcare crisis by the lockdowns. And those are mandates, those were demands, those were impositions on freedom. It's not just this theoretical freedom thing that we're talking about. We're talking about real harm. Now we're talking about vaccine passports. Okay, what if you have natural immunity and uh, you're not one of these affluent people who's been sitting in their home with Zoom meetings uh, and they're going to go get the vaccines. The, this is another example of discriminatory policy, harmful on minorities, as an example, since the lowest uptake from my reading of the data of vaccines is by African-Americans, roughly, you know, 50% less from like instead of 50%, maybe 35%. Uh, and they have their own reasons. It's an individual decision. There's a history of uh, drug experimentation. Uh, and it's not irrational to say they're not going to take a vaccine mandated. So uh, by that, you have uh, minorities and lower income people who have been exposed because they were the essential workers. While the, uh, the rich and the affluent sat in their homes, the essential workers were delivering their food, cooking, in this, in the, working in the grocery stores, etc. Now we're going to force them to get a vaccine without excusing them for having the antibodies and protection, better protection, by the way, than the vaccines themselves. Somehow their movement is restricted all of a sudden. Only the vaccine. Is, is deemed worthy of freedom now, only the vaccinated. So uh, we have a lot of issues that are uh, sort of uh, unraveling here before our eyes on freedom. And, you know, it's sort of trite to say it, but you don't miss the freedoms until they're gone. Uh, this is a, a very dangerous path we're going down. It's gratifying to see the lawsuits being filed by certain governors. I think we'll see more of that about these mandates and restrictions of freedom of movement. Like I say, you can have the option of getting vaccinated. You are protected if you get vaccinated. If you don't like that level of protection, you can stay in your house. You don't have to go on an airplane. You don't have to go to the store. You never have to leave your home again. You can wear an oxygen tank. You could do whatever you want. That does not mean other people have to do that. Not in what used to be a free country. So there's this idea, and we've alluded to this a bit in what we've been talking about already, that people who are unvaccinated are somehow hurting society, are somehow hurting the responsible people who are vaccinated. Um, and I, I want to get you to speak to that, because I think this is a more broadly held belief than I think even many people realize. Sure. There, there's a couple things to say about that. I mean, first of all, we have to realize from the CDC data that something like 94% of people in the United States who are high risk have been vaccinated. 72, 73% of people of all adults, 18 and over in the United States have been vaccinated. And so uh, there's some sort of a exaggeration or a, a misconception that there's this massive number of people who have not been vaccinated. That's number one. Number two, if you've been vaccinated, you are protected. 
If you've been vaccinated, you have very high protection against death and hospitalization. So what's happened, though, is that there's been this uh, transformation of the concept of people who don't want government imposition or mandates or vaccine passports that restrict your freedom of movement or your job availability. They've been characterized as selfish. Freedom is not a uh, some sort of a selfish desire. Freedom is essential. And when you impose restrictions of freedom, you don't just get rid of the uh, essential you know, concepts of life that we in the United States, that the whole country was founded on, but you actually hurt lower income people and poor people more. Because what happens is that they are the ones who, first of all, have a high rate of being infected and have natural immunity, but also uh, they don't have the luxury of working from home. They don't have the luxury uh, of uh, doing their work on Zoom. Uh, they, they, it's, uh, it's an imposition of restrictions to protect the affluent class, the Zoom class. This is a massive uh, sort of a social uh, caste system that's being developed here. And so uh, this is a false argument. It's just like the false argument that people who are questioning the lockdowns uh, were dangerous when instead we were asking for more protections of the high-risk people. We are in a, in a country here that's founded on individual liberty. You have the liberty, the freedom to protect yourself. And that means you get the vaccine if you want, or you isolate yourself from large group events. If you don't want to drive on the highway because all the high speed, all the motor vehicle accident deaths occur at speeds over 60 miles per hour, then don't go on the highway. But you don't have to shut down the highway. You know, and if you're afraid of certain settings, do what you can to protect yourself. You're welcome to wear six masks and uh, stay at home. But the people who want to live in a free country, they, ha they have rights. And, uh, you know, it's just this, uh, the selfish side are the people who are trying to tell other people what to do to protect them. That's selfish. What's not selfish is to allow people to live freely. Now, there's this movement that is really appalling that we've read about a little bit uh, in, in various places that people who aren't vaccinated somehow should not be given medical care or should not be uh, allocated priority for treatment. I mean, this is totally uh, immoral. I'm shocked if any doctor would say that, and I've read them saying it. Uh, and uh, this is really, uh, again, like a step, a, a massive descent of morality uh, in this country and elsewhere, if you would even say that kind of thing. Uh, because, you know, that, that alone is just like saying people that are obese shouldn't be treated for the diseases due to obesity. People that smoke cigarettes, they shouldn't be receiving uh, expensive surgery and chemotherapy for their lung cancer. And, and this is what we hear. We're hearing mutterings of this about people who have not been vaccinated. I mean, this is just unacceptable uh, to anyone who wants to lead a, a moral or ethical life. This is just really despicable behavior. And we have to make sure as a society we, we, we prevent that 
a sort of devolution of our entire nature. Individual liberty is critical to everything we have and we'll never know what we've missed until it's gone. So, Dr. Atlas, you've been, I guess, kind of pretty low key to my eye since we you know, interviewed back in April. Um, I understand you've been working on a book. So maybe, you know, tell me a little about, you know, why you've been staying low key, what you've been doing with your time. Is there a book coming? Sure. So the book, I, I have been working very hard on a book. Uh, it's called A Plague Upon Our House. Uh, the long sub subtitle is uh, My Fight at the Trump White House to Prevent COVID from Destroying America, to Stop COVID from Destroying America. And you can, you can buy it. It's available. It's finished. I was working very hard on it for months. Uh, and the sort of low-key visibility of myself was mainly that uh, it took a lot of effort to write the book. The book was painful to write because it's shocking to relive and to remember the detail of what I saw in the, in the task force. I think people, Americans need to know the truth about what was said, about what was not said. Uh, they need to know the truth about the level of scholarship, the level of critical thinking. It was shocking. And uh, we can never let that happen again, that we have people who don't know what they're talking about, who are not critical thinkers, who don't know the data, be in charge. We can never let that happen again. Uh, we can never uh, excuse that, and people need to know exactly what happened. So that's, a, that's a, one of the three things that I talk about in detail in the book. I also talk about the, the facts uh, of the data. I go through, uh, in a hopefully readable way, the data on some of the key issues, on who's at risk, on kids, on natural immunity, uh, you know, uh, some of the issues that were very contentious about testing, uh, when it's appropriate, when it's beneficial. And, and these things I think people need to understand on masks. I go through quite detailed uh, discussion on. Uh, and then the third part of the book, really, the goal of the book is to talk about what happened, the big issues, the censorship, the uh, really unacceptable behavior uh, in the university environment of people who are afraid to admit they're wrong and instead of debating the data they want to destroy people uh, who are saying something other than what they believe the politicization on campus the the cowardly failure of leaders of universities to step up uh, and ensure that our children our nation's most precious resource really are going to these universities and being able to see a free flow of information that we have promised them as a society to turn them into critical thinkers rather than just somehow compliant believers in a narrative. Uh, and by the way, people are paying over a quarter of a million dollars for the privilege of attending those universities. You have to wonder what they're getting for their money. So I think, uh, you know, the media, the bias of the media, we're in a society, in a country where uh, you know they pulled down the YouTube video of myself and three other uh, medical science experts having a press conference with Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida. Somehow we're pulling down, the YouTube pulls down the, 
the video of that. Uh, I mean, I think that uh, Americans need to know what's going on. So I think the book, um, you know, it, it, it's it's shocking. I, I relate in quite detailed uh, discussion what was said with quotes about people uh, from people's mouths in that room. And I think uh, one, I can assure people of two things. Uh, one is everything I say, every word I say in that book is true. And anybody who knows me knows that, uh, you know, I'm a very direct speaker and uh, I don't care about anything except saying the truth. The truth matters. And the second part is that I can guarantee that the people who I quote in that book will deny they said it. Uh, because their whole careers are based upon these perpetual bureaucratic jobs. They've been very successful at navigating the political environments in various government administrations. Uh, they're politicians. They don't think like scientists. They don't act like scientists. And I'm exposing them for what they really said and did, including the really heinous ignoring of the impacts of the policies, the lockdown policies that they pushed and imposed on people to people's destruction and death. And so, uh, you know, we, we have to know the truth. The American people have to understand what they were listening to here uh, because uh, we can't afford to have that ever happen again. And there will be other crises that we need to deal with. Okay, wait, so let me get this straight. Uh, I didn't realize this. You're saying the book is available now? It's only available to pre-order now. But yes, it's available to buy from all the variety of uh, ways we buy books. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it'll be out in sometime in uh, mid to third week of November. Well, Scott Atlas, it's such a pleasure to have you on again. Great to be here again. Thank you.